You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to another investigation into the world of economics and how we can understand it better and and speak to economists who are trying to make a better interpretation of reality. If you ask me, that is one of the big problems we have with economics today. There's a disjoint between what we see happening in our wallets to what's reported in the press. And today we're joined by Associate Professor Benjamin Phillips, who is uh, at the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. He's also uh, worked at NatSem for 10 years. You would have seen him referenced on the ABC and the press all over the place. He does a lot of the fact-checking on whether negative gearing and mum and dad investors really earn uh, $80,000 or less, checking in on both sides of politics. So, Ben, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we're Good morning. Good. Uh, we're going to talk today a bit about your recent report, which discussed one of our favourite topics here on The Renegade Economist, the role of housing supply and uh, and occupancy. And this report, uh, listeners, was called Regional Housing Supply and Demand in Australia. So, Ben, uh, the key finding, the one that uh, listeners will, will uh, jump up and down about is that you found an oversupply of housing of uh, 164,000 houses between 2001 and 17. Now, why did this finding differ so much from what the National Housing Supply Council has told us uh, for a long time that they said there was a undersupply of housing? Yeah, look, it's a good question. We did look at the National Housing Supply Council. We, by and large, were actually trying to replicate the numbers that they got. Um, And there's a couple of issues with their reports in the past. One was that there probably was an overinflated view of of population growth between 2006 and 2011. Um, In their more recent report, they have overcome that. Uh, some of the results they got out of that report we found rather odd. We were not able to, to replicate those. We did use a, a slightly different methodology, but not wildly different. We also did a did both a very basic and a more complicated approach, and both results came up with fairly similar results, and that was that, by and large, the housing market was in balance, but once you took into account some unoccupied dwellings, of which there's been a fairly strong growth since uh, since the start of our Start of our research in 2001, the, the time point where our research started, uh, that's where mu- much of the housing surplus came from. Now, note in the the report title uh, the word regional housing. Now, can you explain this concept of underlying demand and how that affected your interpretation of these figures? Yeah, so firstly, we wanted to look at the regional dimensions because we didn't think that with housing market was actually all that important nationally, given that housing markets are often regional. So what's happening in, say, Western Sydney is it's probably more of a Sydney story than what's happening in other states and, and so forth. So we wanted to look at the regions and try and understand the dimensions of if there was a housing shortage, where was that, and vice versa for a housing surplus. In terms of underlying demand, it is a little different from economic demand. So underlying demand is really just based on population growth and changes in demographics 
and what that suggests your housing supply should have been, so how many houses should have been built. It's a little different from economic demand, where it may well be that people, in spite of what the level of population growth is, they may want to build more houses than what that suggests, or they may want to build less houses than what that suggests. So we're taking probably the simpler approach of just looking at demographic and population growth. And mostly that lines up with what the, the popular media talks about, and that would often be that, say, Sydney is just not building enough houses to keep up with population growth. So we're trying to replicate that um, that story and see what the actual numbers were. And we obviously got somewhat different numbers from um, at least what's popularly presented around housing supply and demand in Australia. So that uh, is a, your attempt to, to try and show the most realistic uh, housing markets per region, whereas the National Housing Supply Council, they looked at it on an aggregate level. I mean, how, how else can you tease out that distinction between the two? Yeah, so they looked at, I think it was at the state level and also obviously then therefore at the national level. And I think they found a housing shortage of around 280,000 or or thereabouts, I think it was. Uh, Whereas our analysis, we focused at what's called the SA3 level, which is an ABS statistical term. And uh, there's probably around about 340 of those across the country. So we use ABS census data to drill down to that fine level of detail. We compared... We looked at the population growth in each of those regions and looked at different, you know, the demographic changes also going on to predict what needed to be built. And then we compared that with what actually was built. We bolted a few other things onto that, but um, that's the main story of, of how we developed our numbers. And the Housing Supply Council tried to do something fairly similar, but they were doing it at that state level and then aggregating to the national level. Some of the uh, the numbers you've you've revealed here are, uh, are quite something in in that uh, your study period from two thousand one onwards. So you find that uh, house prices have effectively decoupled from income growth uh, around uh, that point in time from two thousand onwards. Now, what do you uh, most attribute that towards? A lot of people say negative gearing, but there's a whole pile of factors that go into it. Yeah, look, um, I mean, the research itself, we did just focus in on the question of housing supply and we did attempt to make some links with house prices and we did find there was some relationship there, which is not really surprising. When you look at each region of Australia, you look at its house price growth and you compare it to whether it had a supply shortage or an oversupply, there wasn't a very strong relationship. So there's obviously a lot of other things that are driving house prices. Supply is important, but it's only one of many, many, many factors. So there's all the other factors that also get talked about. Too often the media, I think, tries to keep things too simple and they just focus on it's it's one thing, it's supply or it's population growth or it's it's whatever it is that um, someone believes it believes it might be. So there's other things like income growth. It's also been quite strong. The rise of dual incomes, uh, very low interest rates is probably one of the most important factors. So clearly households can borrow up a lot more debt and that can help push up prices. That's uh, certainly been one of the other drivers. We also find that um, I know in other research that we've done that one of the one of the mo- one of the principal drivers of house price growth is, is is actually just previous house price growth. So housing markets tend to be quite momentum driven. So you'll find there'll be a period where house prices are rising and they rise quite strongly, and then for some some period after that, not much goes on. It stays quite flat for quite a number of years. But yeah, overall house prices have definitely decoupled from 
any of the fundamentals, if you try and look at just the fundamentals, you won't really explain house prices that well. They seem to have a, a mind of their own and they've certainly grown a lot more strongly than inflation or um, or income growth or most things you look at. It's very hard to uh, unpick what the actual factors are. Yes, well, uh, your, your findings revealed that over the last 17 years, the house prices outgrew incomes by 71% rents by 95% and uh, the CPI by 117%. So listeners, uh, plenty of uh, data there to um, add to the mix that we continuously talk about and how uh, yeah, those who own uh, land and real estate have a huge advantage over anyone just earning an income. So uh, well done, Ben, on those findings. And uh, uh, it seemed that within these this regional analysis, uh, there were a number of examples where supply and demand actually worked outside of the global cities. And this is something I noticed as I drove around Australia last year in communities such as Townsville uh, and Mackay. Uh, when the supply button was pushed, it actually had some effect on uh, prices. Yeah, so we certainly found there was some regions in particularly central and north Queensland and, and western Australia. Now these, of course, uh, they were going very strongly a number of years ago and that's mainly due to the mining boom, which to some extent is now dissipated, although in some regions still still kicks along. Um, so we found that perhaps in these regions there'd been very strong building that took place as, as workers moved into those cities, but then as the workers... Uh, either moved away or population growth wasn't as strong, we found that there's been overbuilding in, in those areas. And sometimes that was quite significant amounts of, of overbuilding. It's probably not that unusual to find regions where there's a bit of a boom and bust that also occurs to housing as well, that there can be an overhang of building in those regions. Mm, and without the investor competition coming in, uh, that we see in uh, global cities such as Sydney and Melbourne, there was n- not as great a support for those prices. So uh, it was was there their findings there that uh, house prices were more closely related to incomes because of that? Look, um, not necessarily. No, we didn't really look into it at that quite that level of detail. We we did look at it. We did look across the country in terms of the correlation between house prices and the level of supply or the level of the either oversupply or the housing shortage. But uh, that's about as, as far as we took that piece of analysis. That's perhaps something for for another day. Yes. Well, well done on the report. It certainly hints at the need for a better objective understanding of of housing supply, demand and vacancy, and something that we've uh, long been advocating for here. Have you got any other reports coming up that you're working on? Yeah, so we're, we're doing quite a bit of work at the moment. We're looking at doing a, a broader overview of house prices in Australia and looking at uh, house price growth and what are the drivers. And that's uh, technical terms and a time series econometric approach. So we're still working on that. That It's, it's actually quite a complicated piece of research, but um, we'd hope to have something out on that um, in, in the coming months. Um, and we're quite excited about that. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're talking to Ben Phillips from ANU's Centre for Social Research and Methods, and he's one of the country's leading economic modellers. And Ben, uh, the economics profession was uh, widely criticised in uh, 2007-08 for not predicting the global financial crisis. What was your perspective on that uh, from your perch as an economic modeler? 
Uh, look, at the time I was actually uh, working at the Housing Industry Association, funnily enough, as a as a senior economist. Um, look, it, it's obviously very difficult to predict these sorts of things. So certainly as, a, as an Australian, perhaps we not, we're not always looking that closely at exactly what's going on in the United States. But regardless of that, I still think it's, it's very difficult to predict these things. I often say that I don't have a crystal ball and... Uh, uh, as interesting as I find economics and trying to understand the in- linkages between the economies, uh, both internally, domestically and internationally, trying to predict things like financial crises is uh, is notoriously difficult. So I, I wouldn't hold that against anybody or a profession for not, not being able to, to predict that. Uh, but perhaps we should have seen the warning signs. Uh, so perhaps not being able to predict the you know the, the exact time and and date of these things, but having a better understanding of um, of what the drivers of of these sorts of things are, and having an awareness that um, things don't always go up and they sometimes come down, and we should be cognizant of that of that of that uh, problem. With your work in uh, building economic models. Uh, what are some of the key f- factors? I mean, people often criticise economic models because of the assumptions. Now, how do you address that criticism and, and how do you go about that in your work, trying to overcome uh, one-eyed assumptions that lead to outcomes that uh, whoever the client is wants to see? Yeah, um, I mean, most of the modelling that I do, we actually build what's, what are called micro-simulation models and that typically for me that's been doing modelling around... Um, uh, say incomes, particularly for taxation and, and welfare payments in Australia, and that there are certainly some assumptions that are built in behind them. Um, but probably a, a useful way of thinking about that is to have a range of assumptions and be transparent about those assumptions and provide results where you can vary those assumptions. And um, of course, I think all models they need to be they are by nature simplified, and they, so they need to have some assumptions built in. But it's being um, being transparent about them and being able to show a range of assumptions that are sensible and credible, and and showing some, you know, showing the results from a perspective of those different assumptions. Like all professions, there's uh, evolution. And uh, could you perhaps give a, a layman's interpretation of how economic modelling has grown and evolved and where perhaps we're heading in the near future? Yeah, look, I think, um, I mean, the models have certainly got more complicated through time. Uh, and I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on all on all elements of economic modelling. My area is, is more micro-simulation modelling and, and sometimes some econometric modelling. But there's lots of other more complicated models out there, such as general equilibrium models that um, I've had a little bit to do with, but not a lot. Uh, but generally speaking, they do tend to get more complicated through time. Partly that's as um, you know, methodologies become more sophisticated. Also, as more data becomes available, so certainly, so the ABS has provided a lot more data become available for for modelers in recent years. It's much easier to get your hands on data. There is also the the advent of big data. Uh, and I don't think we've quite worked out yet exactly what to do with all of that data. And so I'm not entirely convinced at this point that it's actually made big leaps and bounds for the profession of economic modelling, but perhaps it will in the will in the future. So that's an obvious area where there could be new developments. But um, often you'll find that the big data is, is actually, in spite of its bigness, is actually quite limited in that it only covers a certain portion of the population uh, or it's got its own bi- inherent biases within it. Yes, that is a fascinating topic uh, we'll get into in a minute. But uh, could you just give us an uh, explanation of uh, the difference between micro-simulation models and the more popular uh, computable general equilibrium models? 
Yeah, so microsimulation modelling, I mean, it's actually quite a broad area, but the area that I typically look at would be looking at, uh, say, looking at policy change around, say, personal income tax or even company tax or looking at, say, the welfare payments. So basically what we try and do is we simulate some policy change using actual data, and that actual data might be, say, an ABS survey data. So you might have, say, policy one and then another policy, so with a different tax setting, and you compare how each of the households in the survey, how they compare in terms of their income, and you do really quite a straightforward analysis of one family compared to another, and then you sum that across all families in the survey, and you can make a statement about uh, what the overall cost to the um, to the budget would be, and which groups in society are doing better than others as a result of different types of policies. So it's actually, from that perspective, it's quite straightforward. You can then make it more complicated by adding in behavioural change, and that's where you bring in some uh, some more complicated econometric modelling, where you try to attempt to understand if you change tax rates or if you change welfare systems, what that means for behaviour change. Do people work more or work less? Or are there sort of economic um, impacts that are more broadly impacting outcomes? So that's sort of what the micro-simulation modelling does. Uh, and that's used quite heavily by places like NatSem or the organisation I work for here at ANU. The government also does use those, the Department of Social Services and Treasury. They would use those for, for each budget. Um, then the, the uh, general equilibrium modelling is quite a lot more complicated and probably where a lot more assumptions are built in and there's usually they're usually assuming uh, a certain underlying economic model or, or set of preferences, things like you know, people, are people rational or not? Um, and that's where you're trying to look at the overall impact across the entire economy. So let's just say there was like a change in interest rates or a change in the in the exchange rate that has all sorts of impacts on different sectors of the economy. And they have all of these linkages that go from one part of the economy to, to the next, usually using either either using assumptions or elasticity parameters from other studies or perhaps using what's called an input-output table from, from the ABS that looks at all the linkages between one industry and the next. So obviously if you have something like a, like a construction boom in housing, then that tends to feed through, say, into other sectors like, say, retail, and they have these models that have all of these linkages. So they're very complex and complete in a sense, but they're also, by their very nature, due to their complexity, very hard to sometimes understand what's actually going on. And we don't always understand the interlinkages very well. Um, so there's, they're very complicated, but um, I think very often with modelling, we probably should pay a little, little less attention to the results of the modelling and more think about them in terms of a model for thinking about how the world might work and doing, doing various experiments within those models to try and understand uh, how different sectors and how parts of the economy might respond. So I think a little less, a little less um, emphasis on the result, which might be, say, the impact is you know, 0.3 of a percentage point of GDP over the next 20 years, and a little more thinking about what the actual implications are for different sectors of the economy, I think, would be probably possibly a more honest approach and more useful approach. And then, uh, just to uh, throw a curveball in, there's system dynamics modelling, which seems to incorporate uh, these changes over time a little bit more dynamically. Yeah, so I mean, an important part of economics is that um, you know people can choose to consume now or consume later, and they, you know, in an ideal world, they'll optimise their, you know, their income and consumption through time to smooth their consumption. So sometimes these models they try to take into account um, complex dynamic relationships through time, but. Um, Obviously, the, the, as you do that, these models get just more and more complicated and a little less uh, easy to understand. But the, they're all things that are worthwhile thinking about. But um, obviously, you've got to take the results with a 
grain of salt. And, and again, I'd, I'd use the point that um, they're often useful in terms of just thinking about um, you know, what the underlying processes are and what it might mean generally, as opposed to taking the actual numbers too seriously that come out of the models. Mm, they push policymakers to consider the implications of, of these various macroeconomic changes. Ben, uh, this big data issue and the world of uh, behavioural economics uh, <laughs> seems like uh, people are trying to develop this crystal ball and incorporate so many different data points into their modelling. Uh, how far do you think it's going to go in terms of people being able to incorporate uh, the effect of uh, negative equity in the housing market, for example, and what that's going to do to housing supply uh, projections in the near future. Uh, do you think that level of analysis is is going to uh, be commonplace in the years to come? Look, it, it could well be, and obviously very difficult to to imagine where things will go in the, in the near future. Uh, in terms of analysis of debt, what I've typically done in the past is just use ABS survey data, and that's also the uh, the HILDA data set, as it's known, through the Melbourne Institute. And that has very detailed information on, on interest repayments, levels of debt, the type of debt incomes that families have got, and it has a very good coverage right across the country. So it should, they should, at least in theory, they should be random samples and they should have good coverage. So that still, I think, is the ideal approach for thinking about the positions of households and what the implications might be of, of economic change, such as interest rate changes. But of course, down the track, as new data comes online, there, there might be uh, you know, useful insights that can be gained. But I think they're often partial in that it may only be a set of data that comes from one segment of the, you know, of, of the debt market rather than looking at it from a whole perspective. So I still think as much as people are excited about big data, it still remains that, that surveys like the ABS surveys or the HILDA data set um, have got a pretty big advantage in that they've got full coverage of the population and they tend to have full coverage of, all, of say, all areas of debt, um, at least on the household side. Of course, businesses is a little bit a little bit different, but there's other data that can be obtained around that. Here on The Renegade Economist, we are strong advocates for the use of land taxes, and it's always mystified me, Ben, that uh, they're seen as the most efficient form of raising government revenue, but as far as I know, very little has been done in terms of modelling uh, the benefits to the economy of land taxes. Uh, with uh, your your role uh, close to uh, the power makers up there and, and uh, Federal Treasury doing some interesting work on land value capture, have you heard much that's happening in that space? Look, um, there's always quite a lot of interest around um, around land taxes and having a shift towards land taxes and away from other forms of taxation. And I think most economists would, would agree that that's probably a good way to go. The ACT, as you probably know, they have moved more towards um, land taxation, effectively through rates, and moving away from stamp duties. Most of the research that I've seen, so even out of Treasury or even some of the consulting groups in, up here in Canberra, generally suggest, of course, that land taxes have um, very low excess burden, as it's called. So they're, they're quite efficient taxes. They don't tend to interrupt economic activity, whereas most of the other taxes certainly do have some serious implications for um, for economic, economic output. Um, so, look, I think most economists would agree, but as I'm sure you're aware, um, getting any policy change in any direction is incredibly difficult at this point. It seems to be um, going absolutely nowhere, unfortunately. Uh, mm. So any big-scale reform like that um, 
you know, there's always vested interests around these sorts of things and it becomes very difficult. But um, hopefully in the future we can have a you know, more mature debate, but um, I wouldn't be holding my breath. <laughs> well, let's get the modelling done and, and that'll help. But uh, to finish off, uh, I was uh, happy to hear you say that uh, you're um, impressed with the ABS uh, releasing more data. And from my perch, I can see that we've got this incredible potential of geospatial modelling, of being able to animate flyovers of of regions to see how various policies are affecting the community. But we have all this land and uh, property-related data being privatised. Uh, how much of a challenge is the data privatisation uh, development uh, putting in your path? Yeah, look, the ABS probably an area of weakness, and I think a lot of it's to do with, with funding. I think uh, house price data, for example, is, is quite expensive to, reasonably expensive to collect, and the private organisations such as uh, CoreLogic and APM, they tend to hold most of that data. So in my ideal world, of course, the ABS would have a lot more of this sort of data. I think these sorts of data sets... Um, uh, they probably should be held by the public and they should be in terms of the construction of house price indexes and, and uh, data around housing-related matters. Ideally, it's done through government. That said, I do have a good relationship with some of the private um, property data providers um, and they've been very good with academics. They often provide us with, with quite good data that um, we, can, we can use freely, which is good. Um, but obviously, they've got commercial imperatives as well. Yeah, so look, it, it, it is a bit of a constraint. I think housing is an area where, A, we don't do very well on policy in Australia, and partly that could be related to a, a lack of data, although it is perhaps improving a little bit on where it's been in the past, but we've still got a fair way to go. Well, Ben Phillips from the ANU's Centre for Social Research and Methods, thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. My pleasure. So that was Ben Phillips, the guy we always read about on The Conversation, the ABC's fact checker. So great to have him on the show. And uh, key takeaway point, uh, 164,000 properties have been oversupplied to the market. And whilst we didn't discuss it in the interview, uh, if there was a genuine shortage, rents should have tracked house prices more closely. And uh, some of the key findings uh, from his report included that house prices increased faster than rents by 95% over 17 years. They increased faster than incomes by 71%. So there's a lot more to the housing issues than just looking at supply side, which uh, if you remember is uh, code for uh, rezoning <laughs> rezoning windfalls, uh, developer welfare, all those sort of things. It's just a, a push to drive greater sprawl where property owners get that golden pen tick and the value of their land goes through the roof. So uh, that's not the only answer. And as uh, Ben has shown uh, quite convincingly, there's been more than enough houses built here in Australia. The problem is we don't have good enough vacancy statistics and we don't have... Uh, uh, a, a penalty for idle land use. So that's where the good old land tax comes in, doesn't it? But yeah, just imagine if you had the world's best economic system at your fingertips, but it had never been modelled. 
Well, that's what's gone on with land taxes for so long. For centuries, economists have recognised them as the best and fairest tax system possible, but it's never been modelled. So people don't really understand how much it would add to a sustainable economic growth rate, what it would do for inflation if we had a real, uh, a genuine inflation figure that included uh, land and housing in it. What would it do to unemployment if we had a decent unemployment measure that didn't count someone working one hour a week as employed? All of these things are adding up to uh, encourage people to buy, to consume, to be part of uh, this runaway economic system that delivers so much for those who are enjoying monopoly rents. So that's our aim. Some way, somehow, I'm going to get these land taxes modelled. We're going to keep pushing forward on all the various aspects uh, we're advocating. So I think those who are getting in touch, it's been great to uh, receive uh, messages from Doug, Scott, Sandy, Ed, plenty of you out there listening and giving feedback. I really appreciate it. All right, we're coming up to the end of the year. Let's see what we can reveal next week on the beloved 3CR Airways. Check the show notes at earthsharing.org.au. 